Good evening and welcome again to the final part of my series talking about connected nature and in this particular case looking at the just and right base frameworks for nature. Tonight I'm going to do something slightly different which is I'm going to talk to you about the legal underpinnings and where we perhaps have been using the very traditional ways in which the courts have been working and the justice system is working and really giving you an insight into those court cases that have been successful, but really fundamentally challenging the way that our institutions have lined up. And I come from this through the view of international negotiations. I think some of you know that I was working in the UN, and through that view, I've seen how, in a sense, orchestrated people's roles have been. And in a sense, more and more, we've seen that human-centered justice and rights-based approach come up to the fore. So we often hear, whether it's in climate change negotiations or in the biodiversity negotiations, that there is fundamentally a human rights element to it all. But over the last five years, we have seen a tremendous increase in the numbers of courtroom cases around climate justice and traditional land rights of indigenous peoples. And with that growing awareness of the impacts of biodiversity loss uh, on ecosystems, what this is doing is reopening a very broad discussion around the need for a just, and I'm going to use the word rights, based framework. Now, I put that in parentheses because there is a real challenge as to whether rights is the correct phrase that we want to give nature. And I hope by the end of this lecture, you'll realise that we don't need to give special rights to nature because we are all part of nature. So in the lecture, I'm going to first look at climate change and the justice issues that have come up around that. And I'm going to end up talking about something called earth jurisprudence, about wild law, and hopefully introduce you to a new idea, but a very old idea, which is called chthonics. This is the oldest legal tradition that we have, and I'm going to draw on that to suggest perhaps that there is a new way of looking at nature and our role within that. So let's turn to climate justice. Of course, many of us will have seen demonstrations We've seen so many uh, involvement of young people on the Fridays and so on. So there's been an absolute increase in people's awareness about climate change and the issue of justice. But what this has led to is a number of cases that have been brought to the courts. Surprisingly, quite a number. So when we see the kinds of cases, they cover things like not only climate rights, but also domestic enforcement, so are governments doing what they say they're going to do? Keeping fossil fuels in the ground? Um, corporate liability and responsibility? The failure to adapt and the impacts of adaptation? And climate disclosures and greenwashing? So these have all been in the mix of the kinds of cases that have come into the courtroom. Now, in the last three years, since 2017, we've seen those cases double. 884, these are the cases then, and now it's grown to nearly 1,500 by 2020. So clearly this is important. And what's, va what's very relevant is the countries where these cases are being heard. So previously we would say they were primarily in the developed countries, but now we see them turning up in places like Colombia, in India, in Pakistan, Peru, the Philippines, and South Africa. 
And what we think is that climate litigation is projected not only to increase, but it's going to be spurred on, for example, by the Conference of the Parties this year in the UK, as people begin to really understand what governments are saying they're going to do and then evidencing that in their daily actions. And more importantly, we're seeing a lot of commercially-based misreporting of climate risks, governments failing to adapt to extreme weather events, um, and cases brought to enforce previous court decisions. So that whole panoply of different approaches to climate justice and to a justice-based approach is really starting to build up. What's interesting, of course, is that the plaintiffs are very different. They're very diverse. We have now non-governmental organisations bringing cases, political parties, um, as well as senior citizens, migrants and indigenous peoples. So a huge range of people are coming forward with cases. And this is very important. And I'll talk to this uh, later on about the barriers to, to those groups of people getting their case heard, having their, t their day in court, in other words. It's not straightforward as to how people can actually qualify for being the person who can bring a case forward. Courts are very important because what they do is they equalise the power imbalances in society and they actually give force to the rule of law. The question I'm going to ask is whether that rule of law is truly serving where we actually want to be, given all of the agreements that countries are announcing, particularly in the last couple of weeks. Now, the common litigation that comes up are threefold. So there are violations on climate rights. And you can see, you know, impacting human rights. And this is, this is a very important argument that we see coming forward. You don't act on climate, you're impacting my human rights, including the whole range of things that the UN has captured. So the right to life, to health, food and water. And this is really encapsulated in the Sustainable Development Goals. But there's also the idea that governments are failing to enforce um, climate change, both mitigation and adaptation commitments. And I've seen it myself. You, you go into a room full of governments, they're sitting together as a kind of peer pressure. People agree there's a consensus. They make, they make statements, they make commitments, then they go home. And of course, there's sometimes a time delay between what is promised and what is delivered. But through the UN, we see that quite often those commitments are not really met. You don't see uh, laws being implemented, and there's a whole kind of derogation that really doesn't mean that it happens in reality. And then right at the other extreme, we see a lot of corporate massaging, messaging about you know, what they're doing, um, and it's very difficult sometimes to really get down to the bottom and get to the real facts and data about what is being produced, for example, in annual accounts and annual reports. So there's a lot of misleading information. And these are all the things that have been brought to the courts um, and really ex exposed, in a sense, to the kinds of um, difficulties that we have in facing up to a, what I would call a Western approach to dealing with climate change in the courtrooms. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to talk through a number of cases to try and give you a flavour of how judges who are faced with this are really dealing with the problem. Um, so let, let's start out with the international fora. And I'm going to read a few of the decisions, and I'm going to read them really precisely, because the way that the judges articulate their decisions is actually very important for how we're going to think about are these the right approaches to taking care of nature in the future. 
So let's go back to 2017. And the first case is about the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, which issued an advisory opinion in response to a request from Colombia, so from the member state itself, in which the court concluded that the right to a healthy environment is a human right under the American Convention on Human Rights. Now, their opinion addresses climate change all the way through, but what it actually says in the end is, to respect and to ensure the rights to life and to personal integrity of the persons subject to their jurisdiction, states have the obligation to prevent significant environmental damage within or outside their territory, and to this end, must regulate, supervise, and monitor activities within their jurisdiction that could produce significant environmental damage. So this is very important, because this is one member state coming to the inter-American setting, and effectively putting themselves under that discipline of ensuring that how they mitigate and how they undertake policies really adheres to the Human Rights Convention. A little bit later on, in 2019, though, there was a group of eight islanders from the Torres Straits around Australia. And they submitted a petition to the Australian government. Um, actually, they took it to the United Nations, to the Human Rights Committee. And what they alleged was that Australia was violating their human rights under the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights now by failing to establish sufficient greenhouse gas mitigation targets and plans, and by failing to fund adequate coastal defence and resilience measures to the islands. In other words, all of this lack of action was putting them at risk from inundation because of sea level rise. Now, there were a whole variety of articles that they, that they alleged Australia was failing to live up to. Um, the right to culture, the right to be free from arbitrary interference, um, and the right to life. So these are very powerful articles, and I'll come back to what happened there. In 2019, 16 children filed a petition alleging that Argentina, Brazil, France, Germany, and Turkey had violated their rights under the UN Convention to the Rights of the Child by making insufficient cuts to greenhouse gas emissions, again, and by failing to use their role in the G20 to encourage the world's biggest emitters to curb carbon pollution. What these petitioners claimed was that climate change had led to a violation of their rights under the Convention to Life, Health, the prioritization of child's best interest, and the cultural rights of petitioners from indigenous communities. So you can begin to see there's a powerful um, sort of wave building here where it's always coming back to the rights of different groups within society. At the beginning of last year, Five of the tribes in the United States, in Alaska and Louisiana, they also brought a special complaint to the UN Special Rapporteurs. And what they claimed was that the US government and the state governments were violating the tribe's fundamental rights. So they were arguing that they had been forcibly displaced from their ancestral lands as a result of climate change. Um, and what they said was that the US government had actually failed to engage, to consult, to acknowledge, and even to promote the self-determination of the tribes because they were trying to develop adaptation strategies, but these were really not being taken into account due to the resettlement. And so again, they said, our rights as an indigenous people are completely being overshadowed. 
Now, those were taken up into the international courts, and they've had some success, but not necessarily a lot. But if we now go down into the domestic setting, it's really quite, it's really quite uh, filled with, I would say, a lot of angst, because now we're coming to a point where a population has groups within it who are literally saying, this is no longer a political issue. This is something which is fundamentally an intergenerational issue. As a very famous case um, in the Netherlands, it's called the Urgenda. And this case went up as far as the Supreme Court. And I'm going to come back to it later on because the, the, the group that brought it to, to that case um, were effectively initially um, pushed out, saying that they didn't have the right to bring the case to court. But the lower courts, actually having disagreed with each other, brought it up and it ended up in the Supreme Court. And then it became a matter for the European courts that issues around climate change were connected to the European Convention on Human Rights. And as it had been integrated into Dutch law, it actually imposed a whole bunch of enforceable obligations. So there was no way that a government within the EU could avoid this. Now, the reason why this is important is because the court, the Supreme Court of the Netherlands, concluded that the obligations required the government to take steps to reduce carbon emissions consistent with limiting warming to an average of 1.5 degrees centigrade. Now, those of you who've been kind of tracking the climate debate will know that the 1.5 degree trajectory is a very, very tough trajectory to meet. You know, we talk about sometimes about two degrees above industrial levels, three degrees and so on. But 1.5 means very, very severe cuts in the way that we actually energize our population and our society and economy. So the fact that the Supreme Court has concluded that the obligations are on the government to make sure that we do meet those carbon emissions effectively says that every single member state in the European Union also has an obligation. So this is a, a sense in which a domestic law begins to resonate through all of the different member states. Now, building on that, there was another case brought in Colombia. Um, it was the future generations versus the Ministry of Environment and others. So it was like all of the ministries themselves. Now, a young group of plaintiffs filed what's called a tutela. It's a special thing under the Constitution. And what it did was it alleged that their fundamental rights to a healthy life, a life without threat of climate change, and the government's failure to reduce deforestation in the Amazon was really at, at fault. Now, what the Supreme Court of Colombia recognised was that the constitutional rights to life and health and minimum standards and so forth, freedom and human dignity, were substantially linked to the environment and the ecosystem. And what the Supreme Court did was it ordered the government to develop and implement, implement being the key word here, a plan to halt deforestation in the country. You're going to hear about a case in a, in a few minutes where the same thing has been happening in Brazil. And I'm sure many of you will realise that there is a, a currently a, a, a request from the Brazilian government that the world needs to pay Brazil in particular to stop the country deforesting. So I think there's a, there's a whole issue over here about who's actually going to pay. But it's very clear that that decision in Colombia is resonating around the whole of Latin America, around the Amazonia area, that there is now a duty of care of governments to stop deforestation. Um, just coming back to young people and older people and so on, people claiming their constitutional rights. 
Another important case is known as the Juliana case. Um, and what this happened was, what happened here was a, a group of young people, they claimed their constitutional rights against the US, against the government, saying that how the US was running its policies was allowing fossil fuel production, consumption and combustion at dangerous levels. It went up to the Court of Appeals, but they reversed the decision. And so there's been a back and forth and a back and forth. And as discussed in many, many of the legal documents, what the court held was that, and I'm going to quote, there is much to recommend the adoption of a comprehensive scheme to decrease fossil fuel emissions and to combat climate change, both as a policy matter in general and a matter of national survival in particular. But the court lacked the power to, quote, order, design, supervise, or implement the plaintiff's requested remedial plan. So here was the real challenge. The, the court and the judges themselves recognised the case, but they reverted to their power to do anything about it. And this is, this is really sometimes where the courts come undone, so to speak. It's, it's that sense in which what's practical. And, and in a sense, you can only live so much within the Western law. And, and that's why it's important when you see where I end up, um, why I see that there are shortcomings in where we're going with, with the current legal system. A very nice a case that I think is worth thinking about is one by Environnement, Jeunesse, in other words, Young Environmentalists versus Canada. So this, was, um, this is an environmental non-profit organisation, and what they brought was a class action about climate change against the Canadian government. Now, they brought it on behalf of the Quebec citizens, aged 35 and under, and this was the fundamental mistake, because the Superior Court recognised the whole of the claim. They said, absolutely, they say that we realise that the government has set greenhouse gas reduction targets but they are insufficient to avoid dangerous climate change. They're not doing enough. Um, they haven't met, the government hasn't met its obligations to protect the fundamental rights of people, and especially young people, under the Canadian Charter of Rights and, and the Quebec Charter of Rights. They agreed about the impact. So, in fact, they agreed about the whole of the case until it came to, as they called it, the arbitrarily decided cut-off of persons aged 35 and younger. And, and this was a real challenge because they said, well, surely it applies to everybody, not, not just the 35s and under. So it, it unfortunately got chucked out, and I'll come back to that, but um, they are appealing. So, you know, more news on that in a moment. Uh, another case which is really relevant, as I said, about Brazil, where four political parties now, so not the mainstream party, but the four political parties, this is just happening, filed an action against the government in Brazil saying that they had, properly, they had failed to properly administer the Amazon fund. This is a fund that's been contributed to by maybe some of you, but certainly internationally. And it was a mechanism to combat deforestation, um, specifically because we recognise the Amazon as being such an important ecosystem in the world. Now, the parties, the political parties, allege that by disbanding the way that the fund is administered, the technical committee, um, because this technical committee was actually calculating the deforestation and how much had to be stopped and essentially how those funds were to be dispersed. By disbanding that technical committee, 
these groups of uh, the political parties said that, in fact, the government had failed its constitutional duty uh, to preserve ecological processes and to protect the natural environment. Now, last summer, the Supreme Court accepted the lawsuit and it directed the government to provide information uh, about many things, but also how it's been managing the fund and the activities related to the fund that have been implemented or suspended. And so it is no surprise that the government just this week has actually said, um, yes, yes, just give us the money and we will stop chopping the trees down. Because this is, in a way, a way to figure out uh, how they're not going to be held accountable to the Supreme Court. And they're going to say, yes, yes, we've got the money and we're now going to actually stop all of this. I mean, I'm not going to speculate on where the previous funds went, but quite clearly they weren't being used to stop deforestation. So the mere fact that that case brought by very serious politicians wasn't necessarily successful in the bigger picture initially, but was very successful on a very technical matter, has, in a sense, given confidence that there are ways that you can come at the problem and this will reverberate up to the levels of you know, heads of state and so on. So you know, I, I encourage, of course, these ideas of people looking at the technical details because they matter to a court of law and particularly to the Supreme Court in most countries. Now, in Canada, there's been a long history of recognizing indigenous people's rights. And indigenous groups have filed a number of suits about their lands, about their access to resources. And more and more recent, more and more cases have been coming forward about um, how the government is alleged to have violated climate change contributions and commitments. And what the plaintiffs have been arguing most recently is that under Canada's constitutional uh, laws, there is a duty to legislate for peace, order, and good government. Now, what that requires is the passing of laws which include mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions. And what the plaintiffs, in this case, all of the tribes, the, the various indigenous tribes are saying, is that they are deprived of the right of life because of many things, increased uh, risk of premature death, the loss of their lands, for example, their right to liberty, and, and most critically, because of the extreme weather events and the loss of lands and so on in the north, they're saying that there's also the psychological trauma because they have to move. Now, this case is making its way through, and it continues to reverberate through many of the indigenous people's groups. So there's no doubt that the, the added extra of indigenous peoples has a huge impact on how constitutions are really being translated in law. Let me now look at a couple of cases which may be interesting, which is about young people, because they seem, there seems to be a very, um, a very clear uh, a push by young people to bring cases to the courts. And they are becoming very, very successful because they're arguing on the basis of future generations. So in South Korea, for example, 30 young activists, they filed a complaint in, again, the Constitutional Court um, at the beginning of last year. And what they alleged was that the nation's climate change laws violated their rights to life, to a clean environment. And in particular, they said that the Framework Act on low carbon green growth, which commits the country to effectively taking a pathway to uh, global warming below 2 degrees centigrade was insufficient. 
So they'd done their homework. They really looked at the technical aspects, had done all the calculations, and they came with very strong evidence. And that case is now going through to the, to the Supreme Court now. It's moved up. And similarly, in Peru, we see a, a group of young Peruvian activists, plaintiffs, we'll call, um, alleging again that the government's failure to prevent deforestation has violated their rights to a healthy life, to clean water, um, and to health more generally. Now, what they've taken is another level and said, not only do we want to see a better outcome in terms of climate change, but we also want to see a zero net deforestation in the Peruvian Amazon by 2025. So this case has been um, approved. And in addition, what they've been able to do is to avoid uh, all kinds of uh, extraction of minerals and so forth into the forest. And that leads me to another very successful one in Australia, where the Waratah coal mining exercise has been stopped, where a group, again, of young people, 30-year-olds and younger, filed an objection to Australia's um, Supreme Court, and they've been successful in stopping the mining, which would violate not only their rights, but also their children's rights. So these young people are also talking about the intergenerational aspects, which I think is really quite fascinating. But there's been room for older plaintiffs. I have to tell you that a group of senior women from Switzerland have taken the Swiss federal government to court. And these Swiss seniors have argued that by failing to take steps to reduce global temperature increases, the government has violated their right to life. Unfortunately, the court rejected their claims, um, citing the fact that the petitioners are not the only demographic affected by climate change. So neither the injury nor remedy was particularised to them. So, you know, I think this calls for a coalition of both old and young, because clearly the courts need to see that everybody is in the courtroom. But it just tells you just the pressure that is building up. Um, in Pakistan, a group of women successfully filed a petition against Pakistan saying that it wasn't following through on the Paris Agreement, um, this pledge to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and saying that effectively the country's failure to permit renewable energy projects over a period of more than a year um, was really stopping the, challenge, the, stopping the pathway to a cleaner future. And what they said was that climate change differentially impacts and discriminates against women and that as a result of that their actions were discriminating on the basis of sex um, towards a clean and healthy environment so and that case uh, was successful then we get to the big cases for example in Austria Greenpeace and more than 8,000 people filed an action saying that the government's tax structure for domestic and cross-border flights makes it cheaper to fly than to take a train um, and frankly, they won the case. The structure, the petitioners allege, was that this was violating their rights, both under the European Convention on Human Rights, but also contributing to climate change. And then finally, um, we have uh, in Victoria, Segovia, we've got a case where in the Philippines, a group of young plaintiffs, and I love this one, um, they came together, a, a group of young people came together with a whole bunch of car owners um, and they said these car owners would rather not use cars if public transport was available. And um, so what they did was they challenged the Philippine government's failure to make space in the roads for pedestrians and bicycles. So there was no space for people to walk and for bicycles. 
um, on all the roadways. And they said that the government's failure violated their rights to a healthy and healthful, uh, healthy ecology as well. Um, and they said all the executive orders requiring roadways to be designed in this particular way were at fault. They were not taking this into account. Now, it was rather unfortunate. The case had a lot of publicity, but in the end, the court denied the plaintiff, and the reason is interesting. They said, the plaintiffs failed to show a causal connection between the government's inaction and climate harms, but they added also that the government had discretion over how it chooses to implement executive orders. So again, there's a, there's a little bit of a, um, you know, there's a problem here in the, in the particular nature of what has happened in the Philippines. But that's not to say that a similar case shouldn't be brought in other jurisdictions. Um, we've had groups bringing um, to various courts to try to stop things. For example, in Norway, we had a group of people coming from uh, the region around Oslo saying that they could not understand how the Norwegian government despite making all of these big statements about climate change, were still issuing blocks for oil and gas licenses in the Barents Sea for deep sea extraction. And in fact, their petition was very important because the plaintiffs were found in favour and they found essentially that the government had uh, failed to appropriately consider the licenses relevant to climate change impacts before reaching its decision. So this is really going to the heart of how the economy runs. They will have significant impacts ranging from how the government organises itself, how it overhauls its climate policy, and how it really affects specific projects with big economic concerns. So what we see is that people are bringing all sorts of different arguments. They're really sort of challenging how climate change, and now it's starting for biodiversity, of course, how it's impacting themselves, impacting future generations. But now I want to just turn to the rights of nature. So who's speaking for nature in all of this? And what we've seen in the last four years is a body of cases arriving in the courts that are actually asserting the fundamental rights of nature as opposed to people. Um, and this is being litigated all around the world. They're similar to the human rights cases um, into the extent that they sort of argue that the existence of certain rights implies some kind of enforceable obligation, um, especially on the governments. But, um, and, and that even in the absence of legislation very specifically. Very often rivers are cited, and this is the area where I would say you see the greatest, um, the greatest developments. So they may refer to climate change, but often it's about the course of a river being dammed or being stopped or water being extracted. And, and the classic ones have been, for example, in, in America on the, on the um, Colorado River. But there are others. Uh, for example, again in Colombia, there's an example where the plaintiffs filed the claim to compel the government to restrain the mining and logging activities that threatened a particular river, the Atrato River, and all of its ecological integrity and the health of all the nearby indigenous peoples. Now, what the court noted was that there was a relationship between the constitution and the environment. They said it's dynamic and in constant evolution. And they described nature as a real subject of rights. In other words, nature does have and should be recognised in the courts, and it should be recognised by states, 
and that recognition should be exercised under the protection of its legal representatives. In other words, someone has to speak on behalf of nature. So communities that inhabit nature or have a special relationship with it. And this, I would say, has had mixed results. So in some cases, very successful. Um, in New Zealand, we've had the Wanganui River, a national park, Te Uroa, and these have all been given what's called personhood rights. Um, so they're recognised in the legislation. The Ganges and the Yamuna rivers, unfortunately, didn't make it. They tried to create a case of those two rivers and the glaciers that fed them. But the lower court, having granted the rights, unfortunately, it was overturned by the Supreme Court. So you can see there's a lot of mixed understanding about how the rights of nature can really be, um, can really be taken forward. And coming back to the Colorado River... The declaration that was put forward was that the ecosystem is like a person capable of possessing rights. In other words, the river has a right to exist, to flourish, to regenerate, be restored, all the things that one would expect, even of a human. Um, unfortunately, the attorney who brought the case, it was a very well-publicised case, he, reviewed, uh, he withdrew the action, and it's rather, it's rather of concern why he did withdraw it, because he took it away before any decision was reached because essentially the government threatened him and they threatened to seek sanctions available where any attorney files a case for an improper purpose or to raise, quote, frivolous arguments for extending the law. In other words, just don't bother us. We don't want to hear about the rights of nature because, you know, that's all too much. And of course, you know, if you're a practicing lawyer in the US, you know, that's a fairly, fairly serious thing to have levied at you. So, um, I mean, they tried it in Lake Erie, uh, they tried it in the watershed and so forth. And each time in the US, the court has struck down all of these defences and said, oh, it's too vague to enforce. So we can see that there's a, there's a kind of division around the world about how these cases are actually being heard. Now, what is used, unfortunately, is something called justiceability. A weird phrase, but anyway, it's a weird word. But anyway, let me try and say it again, justiceability. And this is about the barriers that are put up as to who can and who cannot bring things to the court. So who is the kind of correct plaintiff? And it includes formal and legal dimensions, practical questions for the courts. They've got enormous discretion as to how they apply it. So they vary. So two that I see poses a challenge, particularly for nature and climate change, is that um, and, and they're very common to most litigants, is that first, quote, a plaintiff must have standing to bring a case. And second, the plaintiff's case must not require the court to resolve questions that are reserved for other branches of government. Now, the contours of all this question, you know, they vary according to jurisdiction. But you can see how this has been used in, in many cases where it's just too difficult. So, for example, the most ca famous cases I mentioned before, the Juliana versus United States and the Eugenda one in the Netherlands. And, and they highlight how complex this is, that when the court is ready and they're looking at this inquiry, they first of all look at the standing of the plaintiffs. And so it could very well be the case that the court never hears the case because the plaintiffs are considered to be just inappropriate. So in the Juliana case, the one against the US government, the 21 young plaintiffs 
who filed the suit against the US government saying, you know, you have to develop a a plan to phase out fossil fuel emissions, stabilise the climate system, you have to protect our vital sources. And what they argued, of course, was that the climate change is is really essential to our life and to property, and that the government had violated the plaintiff's rights by allowing fossil fuel production, consumption and combustion, and that the government had failed to maintain the integrity of public trust. What the plaintiffs asked was you know, pretty straightforward. It was order the defendants to prepare and implement an enforceable national remedial plan to phase out fossil fuel emissions, draw down excess atmospheric carbon dioxide so as to stabilise the climate system. Now, the trial court agreed that these young plaintiffs had standing and could proceed. However, on appeal, the decision was a two-to-one majority of the appellate court concluding that the plaintiffs did not have standing because they could not show a decision in their favour would remedy the harm that they were talking about. So even accepting that the record leaves little basis uh, for denying that climate change is actually going to occur and at an increasing pace, what the appellate court, the two who went against the plaintiffs, were saying was actually, we're pretty sceptical about whether halting US policies is going to have any effect at all. But what was really interesting was the one judge who stood out in favour of the plaintiffs, because what he said was, the majority portrays any relief we can offer as just a drop in the bucket, but we are perilously close to an overflowing bucket. The final drops matter a lot. And so he concluded that the court had a duty to remedy this constitutional harm. And so as a dissenting judge, he pointed out that courts are often compelled to fashion, as he says, and effectuate relief to right legal wrongs. So even when, as frequently happens, it requires that they instruct other branches as to the constitutional limitations on their power. However, unfortunately, he was outvoted two to one, so that didn't go ahead. But when we go to the Netherlands and we look at the Ogenda um, case, we can see that the Dutch did allow the case, which said, from the individual claimant's point of view, that they would file in favour because they said, particularly in view of the practical meanings that this would have on all government policy. So they proceeded... And effectively, that's what's happened. They cited a duty of care of government. Even though the court didn't have remit over everybody else, they said there is a general duty of care and we have to proceed with this. And duties of care are very important because they're in common law. They define a standard of conduct that a party has to admit to. And you can also bring negligence under a duty of care. So this is codified now in what's called the Dutch Code. The Supreme Court has recognised it, and it's been recognised under the European Convention on Human Rights. And what this has done is, in many cases, it's said that public trust in governments is really very, very important. And the Juliana case is the one, in a sense, which re-establishes that trust that we can argue through common law that the duty of care means that the concerns of the public, whether it be brought by a group of young people or whomever, have a right to hold governments to account. So this is, this is kind of a very important um, point of going forward about who is enabled to speak. But as I said, it matters which jurisdiction you're in. Now, 
The other part of all of this is about attribution, because on the other side of the, of the corridor, so to speak, are cases that are brought which are sort of pointing fingers. And of course, then you have to bring the proof. And in the case of climate change, it's actually quite difficult because source attribution and impact attribution requires an enormously sophisticated way of bringing the truth, so to speak, into the courtroom. And of course, you're looking at levels of uncertainty. Um, it's quite difficult to say that you know, what you're doing has in fact affected precisely this population and so forth. So the Juliana case, for example, which relies very much on this attribution science, the plaintiff submitted more than a thousand pages of technical calculations, but the defendants also brought 1,500 pages. So imagine what the courts are looking at. Imagine what the judge is having to read. They have to become experts again and again in these fields. And these and this reliability of what the experts are saying, whether they're on the side of the plaintiffs or the defendants, becomes a matter which in a way undermines some of the science that I've been talking about in previous lectures because you, you're almost setting up false cases of one against another. So source attribution is a genuinely key challenge. Um, we've seen it again and again. And one, I think, important case in this instance is a case in Australia where um, a, a small group in Australia brought a case against a big gas company. And the, the idea, of course, was that the emission of a few tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions from a small factory would not give rise to any kind of large impact. In other words, it was just a drop in the ocean of what was happening globally. And I think what was fascinating was that the court actually found in favour of the plaintiffs because what they said is, but still it matters because you are contributing to that bigger picture and we can trace it right down to the site. So this is an important decision because it means that actually emitters and producers bear responsibility for their share, even if it's 0.00001%, they still bear a responsibility for a share of global climate change. And that's important if we're thinking about how to sway and how to bring courts in favour of plaintiffs in this particular case. There are, of course, other more explicit um, issues. For example, if you have floods where there's been a catastrophic failure of infrastructure, there might have been um, government-controlled reservoirs or um, a failure of levees, for example, with some of the uh, uh, levees that failed with the uh, hurricane called Katrina. And both parties in the case, for example, of the flood control in Texas cited climate change. So you had two parties on either side. One party saying, actually, the amount of rainfall was unusual, but the known effects of climate change could have been foreseen. Government argues the fact of climate change, the fact that it's extreme rainfall, um, could not have been foreseen. It was an uncertain, unknown quantity what was, that was going to come. And so, again, it puts science right into the centre. You know, do you, do you say that uncertainty is something that you cannot do anything about? Or do you use uncertainty to say, well, it's likely to happen, so you better be ready for it? And more and more, we're going to see these kinds of cases where the science in the middle is going to, so to, be, so to speak, be torn into two places and have to answer, in a sense, to both cases. Um, so it's, it's a very uncomfortable place sometimes to be but it's going to be the nature of what we're facing in the future. 
So that brings me really to, to the last part of the lecture. And it's really to refer to something which perhaps very few of you may have heard this phrase, the Chthonic legal tradition. And it's, it's really worth, I would argue, it's, very worth, it's worthwhile reading about it because the Chthonic tradition is about the globalization and the, you know, the ruling of the word around, uh, world around truth. But this tradition is essentially the original legal tradition that we have had. And rather than thinking of legal traditions as based only on information, um, what this does, it talks about the way that information and knowledge is used. And what it really does is it relies very much on the concepts of orality and memory. So this original tradition of, pe tradition of peoples is as experience has grown um, and as orality the oral tradition passes knowledge from one generation to another and how that memory is captured is very much about how all people on earth, in a sense, used knowledge about their world. Of course, it's very different from the legal traditions we see today, the Talmudic religion, the laws, the Roman laws, the European laws, because these are in contrast in the sense that they have structures, they have institutions, they have rules... But just to be very clear, it's not that this original and traditional legal setting doesn't have rules, but they are very diverse and they're captured in a very different way, whether it's from southern Polynesia or from the Maasai, which I know a lot more about. So it relates to practices that are diverse as farming, uh, hunting, beliefs that go from theism to animism, from monarchy to democracy. Effectively, they sit in the core of how we ourselves see ourselves as part of nature. Now, the most evident feature, as I said, is orality. And it's about the teaching of the past being preserved through this kind of informal, nevertheless highly disciplined means of human speech and memory. So to outsiders, it might look very unreliable and very vulnerable to sort of external influence. But from my own experience in the Massa, I can see that the tradition is preserved over hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. And so it's not overburdened with voluminous detail. You can't go and look it up in a book, in other words. There's not a library where you go check it all out. How it happens is through the detail of living. So that detail is transmitted through ceremonies, techniques of life. Um, so it kind of rejects the formalism of, and the expression of law um, and it has been written down by anthropologists, colonial administrators and others. But by not being written down, and this is really quite important, no one individual can occupy the role of scribe or translator to rise above all of the others. Because in fact, the law is invested in everybody. It's a repository in which everybody can share and participate. So the transmission of the tradition, the transmission of the laws and the way in which people live is part of daily life. It's a dialogue, in other words, and it is actually a practice for all ages. So it's a very, very serious inducement to consensus. So if we think about how it's um, imparted, we have, for the benefit of, of many tribes and many peoples, um, the idea of the Council of Elders, so you have elders, people who through their own assimilation of tradition speak with authority. And then just below them, you have 
supplemented by chiefs. Now, chiefs don't have armies, but what they have is a function that can only be undertaken when they generate consensus. So everything is built on this idea of consensus. Dispute resolution is very informal, and in fact, it does sit alongside courts. I've seen this in Kenya. Um, and what happens is that there's a way in which there is no sort of distinct judiciary, not in the Pacific, Arctic, or in Africa. So this informal type of arbitration coexists, again, with more established courts. But what is different is the procedure. The procedure is informal. It's about reconciliation. Um, quite often, it requires slow, careful determination of the circumstances of a case. Um, there's no kind of... It's a, it's a process which isn't confusing, it's not alienating. Where the, the primary goal is reconciliation, not adjudication. And this is really quite different. Quite often, for example, in the Maasai and the Dinka and other tribes, um, the closest relative of the plaintiff, so to speak, of the disputant, assumes the role and responsibility for presenting the opposite position. So there's a sense in which you, you have all the views presented in that way. And there are no de facto barriers, for example, of cost or no de jure barriers for preliminary screening. I mean, nobody's chucked out just because they don't have standing. So the other thing is that the law is immediate. You don't have to wait many, many years. Once it's decided, the next day it happens. And so crucially, um, and I think this is important, some countries, Canada, for example, have recognised Catholic law and they see it as substantive law. Now, what does that mean for us? That means that right now we don't have anything analogous to, to this, for example, in, in the UK. But if you think about how the law works, we talk about formal sources, very sharply de delineated rules. Um, there is only a sharing of information as opposed to you know, a sort of a, a parceling out of information compared to Casonic law, where everyone shares the information and comes to an adjudication, as we would call it, a decision, um, through a consensus. And that, in the end, is perhaps the biggest contrast between the, the laws that we have today, highly adversarial, versus those which actually inhabit and are part of the world where people have lived through the Casonic um, tradition. And this is important for things like land, because, of course, once you start to say that land is jointly owned, it's commonly owned, although you can have property, there is no such thing, actually, as property per, per se. But the Canadian government has come through with a chthonic law of usufruct. So, in other words, they do say that there is land that belongs or is looked over by groups of people. So there is a way to work within today's legal constraints and yet still have this community usufruct, the community lands. So this is recognised in common law jurisprudence and it's also recognised within the sort of more traditional indigenous peoples. So I'm going to leave you with just a couple of thoughts. Chthonic law, okay, we could say it's not for everybody, but it is fundamentally a different way of thinking and it can sit alongside the traditions that we see in Western law, European law, Roman law and so on. But most crucially, and, and in the current debates about climate and biodiversity, the difference is that there is fundamentally a principle of respect and a need for harmony. That, that's essentially what Casonic 
uh, the legal tradition is all about. It's not a religious tenet. I mean, there's no church. There's no structure of implementation. It's rather that it's a constant presence. So, you know, there's... There's the, the forest is the church, if I can put it like that. Um, the hunt or the harvest is the gift from what you might call God, but, but there's no such necessarily thing as God, but there is a God. The natural world, in other words, is the embodiment of, of this religion. Interestingly, there's no recognition of something called the secular world or facts about nature because it's this continuum and humans are part of the continuum. So you don't separate yourself from nature because there is no need, because you're part of a continuum. And I think this is where, if you really were to write down what is environmental law, actually it is chthonic law. That is effectively what we're talking about. And I always like to say that chthonic law is not green, it's actually all the colours of the universe. That is what it is. And if we take that forward and think about it, Environmental law talks about fixing things, repairing things, dealing with damages. Chthonic law means that we live our entire lives in a world where we accord as much respect to natural things as we do to ourselves. So you could ask the question, would you dump things on yourself? You know, would you dig up things that would harm you? And once you start to consider that the law covers everybody, that that includes all living life, uh, plants and animals and so on. I mean, you wouldn't actually want to be damaging life because actually you're damaging yourself. And that's why when indigenous peoples come to the courts with these kinds of discussions, they don't use words like rights. That's a very Western construct. They think about animals and plants as part of nature. They enjoy the same sanctity as, as humans do. So they don't feel the need and necessity to create the entitlements of nature because, in a sense, they're the same as the human population. So there's no utilitarianism. There's no sense of separating nature from humans at all. So there's no mistreatment of animals. There's a whole bunch bunch of things that come out of that. And it doesn't mean that life isn't immutable. What I like about it is that there's there's a version of time in Casonic law which means that whether you're born today or yet to be born, um, the natural world is in the community. So ancestors and the future are all part of the time horizon such that community members are not just making decisions about their own environment today. They're acting for all the surrogates, for all those whose dependencies exist that will come out in future and all of those who have already died. So in a sense, that continuity is very important and that's why there's such, a, such a, an emphasis on a consensus and such an emphasis on nature is not inexhaustible. You shouldn't deplete it, but certainly you need to work with it. So in the end, we have to say from that perspective, the tradition of Chthonic um, legal settings is a continuing one. It's the one that carries on. And I I would always say, um, a very, very good friend of mine, Cormac McCullinan, he wrote a book called Wild Law, and it's called Governing People for Earth. And he wrote very much in response to um, Thomas Berry. Some of you may know him. Very, very eminent social historian. I call him a geologian, an author, and a poet. And what he pointed out was that 
our legal and political systems legitimize and encourage the exploitation of Earth. And I couldn't agree more. And he stressed this for many, many years. So we see now amongst the legal uh, professions and, and certainly a lot of litigants, this idea of Earth jurisprudence, Earth governance. And what we recognize when we see the language is a recognition that the source of fundamental Earth rights of all members comes from the entirety of nature. We recognize the roles of non-humans and humans. We have reciprocity and maintenance of that dynamic equilibrium. And we have an approach to condoning or disapproving human conduct on whether it actually weakens or strengthens the bonds that constitute the Earth community. So my hope is that as lawyers lawyer up, and a lot of them are saying, you know, when we go to court, we get results. I'm hoping that um, in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, and obviously with the climate and the biodiversity crises, yet you know, we still need to overcome them, what we're going to do is pay more attention to these kinds of traditions, to the Chthonic peoples, but also to that deep legal tradition, which we have all come from. And we need to consider conserving nature as a way of life. I would say that it's not something which requires special membership. We are all members of this legal tradition. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, Professor. And um, my name is Simon Thurley. I've got uh, some questions here from your audience, and quite a few of them. Um, we'll get through as many as we can. Um, so the first one is this. These fascinating legal cases mainly look like citizens versus countries or corporations. Have countries also taken on the responsibility of filing suits? One or two countries have, in fact, smaller countries, but even Colombia, taking a case to the inter-American uh, setting, is a case in point, where feeling that their neighbours are not doing enough uh, is actually using an international body to make the case against neighbours. So we're beginning to see that governments who feel that their government neighbours are not making enough progress are actually being very proactive. Maybe we'll see after this year's Convention of the Parties in November in Glasgow, maybe other countries will feel more empowered to do that. The next question is, um, to put these cases forward to the courts, don't they need a lot of money to do it? Of course, in the past, it would have been very, very difficult for people to bring cases. But we're lucky that there is now an earth jurisprudence movement. There are many lawyers um, who are fascinated and are contributing their time and efforts to it. So, yes, but I see again and again young plaintiffs particularly finding the wherewithal and the means to be supported to bring those cases to the courts. The next question is, scientists often say that we look too much at personal responsibilities and not enough at the major industries affecting climate change. Do you agree? <laughs> I do agree, and I feel that maybe we need to be braver. Um, we're all, I think, under the cosh when it comes to not criticising sometimes the, the companies that essentially present our daily life, um, energy uh, and so on. But... You know, I'm very privileged in the sense that I'm on both sides. I, you know, I live with a Maasai tribe where there is nothing. There are no big companies. And then, obviously, being here in, in London and living in that kind of environment. And I see the difference, which is you need to be brave in this world. And therefore, scientists need to stand up. And really, and there are a lot, of course, who are very brave. And there are lots of activists who are brave. 
But what we need to be very careful of is to equip ourselves with the right kind of evidence. And so that's why we need concerted action. It is citizens with scientists, but it's not necessarily always the need to go into battle. I think, as I was trying to say, that this idea of creating more consensus, chipping away at edges where companies can change, um, particularly those that have responsibility for resources, I think that the tide is turning, and it's not just consumerism. It's a genuine sense that with younger members of staff coming in, they're seeing a different way of working. So I'm a little bit more optimistic, but I, I, you know, I like to draw a line in the sand and say, you know, this is where the accountability ends. Here's someone who wants some um, very practical advice. Uh, do you have some take-home guidance on bringing governments and corporations to account on violations of climate change? For example, the opening of a new fossil fuel mine in Cumbria, UK. Well, you know, I'm on the front line on this one. I think really we have to be very clear that um, there's a lot in the store cupboard which hasn't quite made it out into the public eye. So you can imagine that some of these big mines, uh, energy systems have been in the planning works for a very long time. And so we shouldn't be caught unawares. Um, it's, it's clear that, you know, five, ten years, some of these are in there. So be aware that... If something suddenly appears in the headlines, yes, of course, we should be objecting if we haven't seen it beforehand. But let's do the homework. Let's find out what's already in the pipeline and given and try to stop it before it even gets close to, you know, to opening the doors. Um, another one which is, I think, perhaps a little bit more UK-focused. Um, what about the privatisation of water sources? Water is life. So would privatisation of these sources violate the rights? I think this is a, a very, very important uh, position. And I think overall, we are, um, we're in a difficult situation with water because with climate change uh, and the trajectory that we have for the UK, it's going to be very, very clear that we need to manage our water resources for, as a public good. And it's not possible for individuals, for example, to look after big infrastructure, to move water around the landscapes. <coughs> So when it comes to water and other resources like soil, we need, <coughs> excuse me, we need to have a way to hold to account those who have that responsibility. For example, not allowing the soil to be really run down, <coughs> excuse me, to be degraded. <coughs> and the same with water. Keeping water quality, investing in the infrastructure to, so to speak, protect the rights of people so they always have access to drinking water, clean drinking water. So <clears throat> I would say that privatisation under the heavy hand of a regulator is almost the best way to go forward because of the investment that will be required. Now, here's someone. Uh, are you all right to carry on going? Yes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Shaking a bit. There are a couple more. I'm sure the people who asked would love, love you to answer if you could do. Um, just to ask you two more. Ubuntu in South Africa is about harmonious relationship. Any thoughts about combining it with Chthonic? Absolutely, and Ubuntu is almost the, the 21st century version of Chthonic living. Um, I love it. I mean, it's absolutely core to cooperation, to community thinking. Uh, and, and it's been talked about a lot that Africa possibly is the greatest store cupboard of this kind of thinking. I'm not saying it hasn't been contaminated by, by different legal traditions or different ways of working. But I can tell you, I can put my finger into pretty much every part of Africa and find communities, find that kind of thinking hasn't gone away. 
And I hope that in this short period where we really have to act globally, in the next 10 years, for example, that we can bring that sense of community, of Kasonic legal traditions, right up to the front. Because that would demonstrate that countries that haven't destroyed their environment are actually in a preeminent position to lead the world in taking forward a different way of going forward. That's what I see as being the greatest potential ahead of us now. The last question. Who would you most like to mount a legal charge against? Wow. Um, Save the most tricky one till the end. It is, and I certainly don't want to end up in the libel courts on this one. Let Let me just preface that. I think everybody, actually. Can I be honest? I think every one of us could be, at some stage or another, held accountable for our own actions. Um, And and therefore, in a sense, it's against the way in which we all live, the small decisions that we make. And so I would turn it around and say, I don't want to to hold everybody to account. What I would like to think is that everyone holds themselves to account to actually move forward in a very different way where we essentially see that what we do affects our neighbours and what our neighbours are doing affects us, and therefore come to some kind of consideration amongst each other. That, for me, is the way that we should proceed, not in an adversarial way, but in a consensual way. Professor McGlade, thank you very much for an excellent, fascinating lecture this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.